If you are able, I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of our scripture lesson, which comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I want to speak to you this morning on the topic, hidden figures. Hidden figures. Let us pray. Lord, I'm so glad that all of our help comes from you. Come into our midst this morning in this place. Invade us, Lord, so that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Katherine Johnson, Mary Jackson, Dorothy Vaughn. Those are the names of three women who changed the course of American history. Katherine was a mathematician, Mary an aspiring engineer, and Dorothy a computer specialist who worked for NASA during a pivotal period of time in our country's history. It was the space race. From the mid-50s to the mid-70s, we were in an unfriendly competition with Russia. We were fighting for dominance in space capability. We wanted to be the nation that had the better technology, the better military capabilities, the better political and economic system. We wanted to have bragging rights. And so, we were driven to get a man on the moon before the Russians because the Russians beat us to getting a man to orbit the Earth. President John Kennedy made a national commitment, and we were in it to win it. And the whole thing played itself out on television. But for all that the coverage that this received, most of us never knew about the hidden figures that I mentioned. Those women whose skills and abilities made all the difference in our success. The book became a movie, and that's how we all came to have the backstory of these three women who served under difficult circumstances with dignity. When you find out the backstory, it changes everything. When you find out the backstory, then you realize the story you were telling all along was kind of a false narrative. When you know what the backstory is, you realize you have an incomplete image of who you were. And with that in mind, I want to invite you to come with me to our scripture lesson. This is a passage that we are all familiar with, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. This is where we begin one of our signature stories in scripture. This is the call of Abraham. <laughs> it is. It's an iconic moment. And my Old Testament students who are here will tell you, this is where we move from the primeval history 
to the ancestral narratives, not like that's what you would say, yes. And they would tell you that this is the first time in Genesis that we can actually place stories in some kind of historical timeline. If we were biblical theologians, we would say, this is where we move from universal history to salvation history. It is a big moment. It is a foundation story that tells us something about who we are as children of Abraham, and it informs our own calls. And we start in chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go. And we read those words, and it signals that we have a genre here called a call narrative. And a call narrative works this way. God shows up and issues an invitation or command, and then there is the response of the person. People don't always respond the same way. <laughs> Some people say yes right away, like Isaiah. Other people argue back and forth, um, like Moses um, and Jeremiah. And some people run away, like Jonah. But no matter how the person responds, inevitably, God wins. That's how a call narrative works. And some of you are here today because God won. So God calls Abram and God says, leave your land, leave your descendants, leave your blessing. And Abram goes. This is a fascinating story in some ways because unlike other call narratives, we don't have a burning bush. There are no six-winged seraphs singing holy, holy, holy. There is no wheel in the middle of a wheel. So far as we can see, no vision, no trumpet, no lightning, no whirlwind, not even a man in camel's hair. And because we read it as a traditional call story, we always focus on what God asked Abram to give up. How could God ask Abram to give up his country and his kindred and his father's house? And what kind of faith Abram must have had to leave everything behind? But when we draw back the curtains and read the verses before Genesis chapter 12, when we go to the backstory, we find these words. Terah took his son Abram, and his grandson Lot, um, grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. The backstory tells us that Abram had already left home. His father had already left on his way to Canaan, settled at Haran, and died there. So the backstory tells us that his father was already dead. He had already suffered loss. He was already a sojourner. Before Abram ever heard a word from God, the circumstances of his life had already called him. Wow. The story behind the story tells us that God called Abram from his own personal wilderness. 
He had already lost all the stuff he was asked to let go of. God called Abram from a personal wilderness to bring him to another wilderness. (laughs) Stay with me. God says, I want you to leave this wilderness of loss and come into this wilderness as a sojourner from one desert to another. Pay attention, because just as there are motifs and patterns in Scripture, there are motifs and patterns in our lives. And I suspect that some of us are listening to this and thinking, that sounds like my life. I went from one wilderness to another. I went from one mess to another. I went from one difficult situation right into another. The Israelites were enslaved to serve Pharaoh. God sets them free and says, now you're going to serve me. Jacob struggled with his brother, escapes that, struggles with his father-in-law, escapes that, struggles with God. Hagar goes into the wilderness in chapter 20, and that's not the first time she'd been there. It was a remix of something that had happened earlier. Jonah finds himself in the belly of a ship and goes from the belly of a ship to the belly of the whale. The fact is some things God is calling us to, and we cannot escape. And for many of us, that thing is the wilderness. The wilderness keeps popping up in our lives. It's a recurring motif. Apparently, some of us can't get enough of wilderness experiences. And the very history of Israel takes us from one type of exile to another. Sojourners who are then enslaved, who get out of slavery to go into a wilderness, who finally make it to the promised land, but they can't hold it together that long and find themselves back in exile. We spend more time in some type of wilderness than anywhere else. If that pattern bears resemblance to your story, or if that is your current situation, remember that when God called Abram, he was in a sense of loss, a state of loss, a place of transition that he did not plan for. Sometimes, saints, you go to sleep one way and wake up and discover you're in the wilderness. Sometimes you're walking along, minding your own business, make a wrong turn, and the next thing you know, you have been exiled. Or perhaps you are like Jacob, running away from a mess of your own making into another mess. No matter how you got there, and no matter what kind of wilderness it is, if wilderness is a recurring motif in your life, if wilderness is your backstory, perhaps we need to find a way to deal with the fact that this is a part of what God wants to use in our lives. No matter what kind of wilderness you're in, every wilderness has some things in common. And one of the things you will find in a wilderness experience is that there are things you take into the wilderness that you will have to let go of. There are things in the wilderness that will serve no purpose for you. And if you are trying to survive, you will quickly figure out what your essential items are, what must go into your go bag, what you need to make it. Some of us find ourselves in the wilderness 
and need to let go of a false sense of ourselves. We have to stop acting like God doesn't know who we are. Right? We need to stop acting like God believes the lies we tell ourselves about ourselves. The wilderness is like the Marie Kondo for our souls. <laughs> it is. It's hard work stripping down. Our pretenses and our pride and our delusions. And when we finally get down to the bare bones, I believe God looks at us and says, oh, there you are. I've been looking for you. There's the creation that brings me joy. So if you find yourself in this wilderness, don't waste time fighting it. Hear me, seminarians. Don't waste time fighting the wilderness that you are in. Don't waste time saying, oh, I can't wait to get out of seminary so I can become a priest. That's funny. That's funny, right? Don't spend time desiring the leeks and onions of what you had before you came. Because when you're honest with yourself, the situation you came from wasn't perfect either. God has called you from one wilderness, one place of trial into another to form you so you can get ready for the next. You are here, and your formation will not be rushed. So pay attention and take time and learn the lessons of the wilderness. There's this place in D.C. I'm almost done. This is place in D.C. You're supposed to say that when you're a Baptist preacher. There's this place in D.C. <laughs> where um, where I get my hair done. It's called Lock Love. So they take care of people who have sister locks, dreadlocks, any kind of natural hair. You go to Lock Love, and they will take care of you. Now, I don't go to Lock Love often because Lock Love is not really a salon. It's a way of life. So you go in there, and, you know, when they wash your hair, you feel like it's like a ritual. You know, they just take so much time. And don't go there if you have an appointment later that day. All right? <laughs> they are going to do a good job, but they are going to do it their way. All right? If you start stomping your feet and telling them you have something to do, they will say, well, maybe you should make another appointment. Some of us spend our whole time trying to tell God how many minutes we have left before we have to leave the wilderness. And it won't get done until it's done. So stop fighting it and let God do the work that God is going to do. During this season of Lent, we will all engage in different practices. We won't all have the same Lent. We don't all have the same wilderness. But we will all, during this time, have an opportunity to think about our humanity, our vulnerability, about the way we make mistakes, about how doing this work is hard. And the one thing we can all know, regardless of our circumstances, is what we learn from all of those who went before us who went in the wilderness. It's what Abram and Hagar and Jacob and Moses and the children of Israel and John the Baptist and Jesus have to tell us. If you wait in the wilderness, God will show up.
Every time. Every time, God will make God's self present in the wilderness. You just have to wait. When children go on camping trips, they tell them, if you get lost, you stay put. We will come and find you. When we are lost, just wait. God is looking for us. God is the hidden figure in our wilderness who has designed our path and ordered our step. And all we need to do is trust and wait. Amen. Amen.